Peter comes to the end of his letter. In this final chapter, he has been sharing several exhortations with his beloved readers. Be mindful about scriptures and scoffers. Be not ignorant about the doctrines of God and end times. And be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness and in handling the scriptures. The exhortations are significant in light of the antinomian Gnostics' false teaching about which Peter was warning. In particular, they were teaching against the Old Testament and twisting Paul's writings. Significantly, the Old Testament's foundation is God's law, and the difficult passages of Paul, which they twisted, were those dealing with God's law. The Gnostics viewed the God of the Old Testament as an evil deity and determined that the Old Testament should be dismissed as irrelevant and twisted Paul's writings to fit into their antinomian philosophy. Thus they claimed that Paul taught against God's law. Interestingly, this was the same claim that the Judaizers made against Paul. Acts 21, 20-21 And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. In response to the charges the elders of the Jerusalem church testified in Acts 21-24b that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Later, the Judaizers stirred up the Jews against Paul, charging him with preaching against God's law. Acts 21-27-28 When seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. As a result, Paul was arrested and imprisoned. When Paul spoke before Governor Felix in Acts 24, 13 and 14, he said, Nor... Can they prove to you the charges of which they accuse me? But I, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Later, when speaking before Governor Festus about the charges in Acts 25 8, Paul declared, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. As well, Paul testified to the Romans in Romans 3.31 that do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Furthermore, he stated in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Sadly, 2,000 years have passed and antinomian Gnosticism is still an ever-present threat to the church. It creeps in by teaching that God's law has been abolished, that Jesus Christ is not Lord, and that repentance is not necessary for salvation. 
So Peter's final words in 2 Peter 3, 17 to 18 are as important today as the day they were written. Peter exhorts us to be on guard and growing. These final two exhortations are a summary of all the previous exhortations. As we guard against false teachers and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we will persevere in the faith. We will obtain our imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. And so as we consider 2 Peter 3, 17-18, we're going to consider two thoughts. First, in verse 17, that we need to be on guard against false teachers. We need to be on guard against false teachers. And then in verse 18, we need to be growing in grace and knowledge. Be growing in grace and knowledge. So let's begin with verse 17 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness. We need to be on guard against false teachers. See, in this chapter, Peter has addressed his readers as beloved for the fourth and final time. Again, this displays Peter's sacrificial and fatherly love of a shepherd for Jesus' sheep. The conjunction, therefore, shows inference and refers back to Peter's statement about the false teachers. Because of the false teachers, beloved. The verb knowing beforehand implies that Peter's readers had previous knowledge or an advanced warning about these false teachers. Make no mistake, having this advanced warning provides us with an advantage over false teachers. However, a warning. Having an advanced warning also means that we have no excuse for being deceived by false teachers. Now this advanced warning came from the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. More specifically, it refers to what Peter revealed about the false teachers in chapter 2 and 3. False teachers are a continuous threat, promoting destructive heresies and alluring immorality, 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. They have impure motives and are doomed to judgment, 2 Peter 2, 3. Likewise, false teachers are arrogant, animalistic, atrocious, adulterous, apostate, arid, and accursed, 2 Peter 2, 10 to 22. And finally, Peter called out the false teachers as untaught and unstable, who in turn twist and distort the scriptures, 2 Peter 3, 16. So as the old proverb says, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. See, when a doctor tells their patient to make changes to their diet, they warn them to take corrective actions to prevent terminal diseases. Similarly, Peter is telling us in advance about the dangers of false teachers. Now, while some may accuse Peter of being overly cynical, the fact that Peter has used the term beloved four times in this chapter underscores that his warning is driven by fatherly love. When parents love their children, they warn them 
about those things which are dangerous to their health and well-being. You see, love is both positive and negative. Love affirms good behavior, but it also warns against bad behavior. As Paul admonished Titus in Titus 1.9, the work of the elder is to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's both positive and negative. You see, elders who love the sheep in their care will on the positive side teach them sound doctrine and on the negative side will discipline those who contradict sound doctrine. See, believers, you and I would do well to heed Peter's warnings and take the necessary steps to be on guard against false teachers. Now, the verb be on your guard, philoso, or be vigilant at all times, pictures a military guard who protects those under his watch from danger. Such a soldier is prepared to lay down his life to protect those in his charge. Interestingly, in 2 Peter 2.5, Peter used this verb, philoso, to explain how God preserved Noah through the flood. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved philoso, Noah. Thus, you see, God took all the responsibility to guard Noah, guaranteeing that neither he nor anyone else on the ark would perish in the flood. God continues to guard his people. As Paul testifies in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect philoso you from the evil one. Now the verb be on your guard, philoso, is in the middle voice here and it stresses personal interest in the action being performed. Hence the verb's idea is that believers are to guard ourselves against false teachers or to keep ourselves from false teaching. Furthermore, the verb is an imperative, meaning that guarding ourselves is not optional. We must be guarding ourselves against false teachers and making such a habitual practice. Now how, then, should we guard ourselves against false teachers and their teachings? We guard ourselves against heresies and heretics by diligently studying the Scriptures. Hence Peter's statement in 2 Peter 3, 2, that we should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And as to why we must guard ourselves against false teachers and their teachings, Peter provides two reasons. The first reason we need to guard ourselves is so that we are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. The verb carried away, sunapago, refers to being deceived or led astray. This verb was used in Galatians 2.13 describing how Peter's hypocrisy deceived or led astray Barnabas and others. The verb is in the passive voice implying that another is deceiving believers. However, Peter's command to guard ourselves demonstrates that while we do not deceive ourselves, the, our failure to be on guard against false teachers and their teachings will place us in the position of being deceived. 
Notice that believers, that we are to guard ourselves against error, plane. The term error or plane means to wander away from the right path. Both Peter and Jude use the term error to describe the way of Balaam. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, planeo, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error, plane, of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Peter also used this term in 2 Peter 2.18 to describe the false teachers as the ones who live in error. This term can be rendered then as a misleading or deceptive belief. Christ warned the disciples, See to it that no one misleads you, plan A. If the disciples were capable of being misled or deceived from, by false teachers, how much more should we heed Peter's warnings? These misleading or deceptive beliefs are perpetuated by unprincipled men. Athesmas. Athesmas, or unprincipled men, are individuals who deviate from all that is considered morally upright. And Peter used the same term to describe the people of Sodom and Gomorrah back in 2 Peter 2.7. As such, false teachers are disgraceful, unseemly, and morally corrupt. And we must guard ourselves so that the deceptive beliefs of these immoral people do not deceive us. Now the second reason that we must be on guard, that we must guard ourselves against false teachers and their teachings, is so that we do not fall away from our own steadfastness. The verb follow from, ek pipto, is a boating term that means to drift off course. It derives from the root term pipto, which means to go astray morally. Paul used this term in Hebrews 4.11 when he exhorted us to be diligent, spadazo, to enter that rest, so that no one will fall, pipto, through following the same example of disobedience. According to Paul, believers who do not make every effort to strive and labor for spiritual maturity will fall, or, that is, go astray morally. Peter states that we are deceived by the deceptive beliefs of immoral people, and when that happens, we will drift from our steadfastness. Starigmos. You see, steadfastness, starigmos, refers to secure footing or a position of security. It is something which is fixed or stable. And contextually, it refers to the stability or security of morality. Morality is fixed or established because God is the source of morality. Psalm 119.68 You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Matthew 19.17 He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. 
Now in Psalm 119 and Matthew 19, the term good refers to moral excellence. God, then, is moral excellence. Therefore, morality is something which reflects God's character. When he created, he declared his creation morally good, thus setting the standard of ethics for his creation. Genesis 1.31 God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, the code of ethics or morality which God established for humanity is found in Leviticus 11.44 and repeated in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. You see, Peter's point is that if we do not guard ourselves, we will drift away from morality. And Peter knew all too well how quickly a believer can drift away or go astray morally. Remember, on the night of the Last Supper, Peter boldly announced to Christ in Matthew 26, 33, that all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Before the next morning, Peter had fallen. He had drifted morally. He lied, cursed, and even denied knowing Christ. You see, my friends, we must be alert that when we keep company with false teachers, we are placing ourselves in danger of being deceived and drifting into immorality. I challenge you to remember Christ's warning in Matthew 24, 44, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonder so as to mislead, planeo, if possible, even the elect. We must be on guard, and that means that we must be grounded or established in the truth, 2 Peter 1.12. And that truth is the word of God, Psalm 119.160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17.17. 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Faithfully studying and applying God's word will enable you to guard yourselves against the arguments or beliefs of false teachers. And so I ask, are you faithfully studying and applying God's word? So we need to be on guard against the error of false teachers. Now secondly, we need to be growing in grace and knowledge. Verse 18 but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter begins verse 18 with the term but, a conjunction of contrast. That is, instead of being deceived and drifting into immorality, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge. Now the verb grow, oxano, means to increase or mature, and it's in the imperative mood. That is, growth is necessary, not an option. Again, like guarding ourselves, we must make growing a habitual practice. Now, in terms of growing, if a child is not growing, it is symptomatic of a health problem. So, too, a lack of spiritual growth 
on the part of a professed Christian is indicative of a spiritual problem. Growth is the natural course of life. And a lack of growth, therefore, is indicative of death. Therefore, one who refers to themselves as a Christian, but evidences no spiritual growth, is in reality still dead in their trespasses and sins. Now the verb grow here is not only imperative, but it's in the present tense, indicating that this growth is to be ongoing. Growth doesn't happen overnight, my friends. It is a process. And as a process then, growth is chartable. Parents take their children to the pediatrician who weighs and measures them and charts their growth. Many may recall a place in their home where they measured and recorded their height or the height of their children. That was a growth chart. And so too, believer, we must be able to look back to the moment of our new birth and then be able to note discernible moments of growth. Now, Peter previously admonished us to grow in holiness and godliness. Holiness is exhibiting a lifestyle different from this pagan hostile world, and godliness is the outward display of reverence or piety towards God. But now Peter exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Peter ends his epistle in the same manner in which it began, with grace and knowledge. In 2 Peter 1, 2, the apostle wrote, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, we need to grow in grace. Grace, or charis, is the loving favor that God bestows on sinners at salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Also, God's favor is the enabling strength for daily living and the ability to endure the pain of, pains of suffering and slander. 1 Peter 2.10 But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor or grace with God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now what does it mean then to grow in grace? Growing in grace means to increase or mature in God's favor. Paul explained in Titus 2.12, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Growing in grace, then, has both a negative and positive connotation. On the negative side, as we grow in grace, we are to say no to ungodliness or wickedness. As we grow in grace, we are to say no to worldly desires, that is, fleshly lust. On the positive side, we will live sensibly or moderately, we will live righteously or morally and godly. Now, Peter previously spoke of particular qualities or traits that are to be increasing in the lives of believers. In 2 Peter 1, 5, and 7, he stated that we are to be applying all diligence to grow in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. 
And it is these qualities that are demonstrations of growing or maturing in grace. There must be growth in moral excellence or Christ-likeness. There must be growth in knowledge of scriptures that informs and directs your life. There must be growth in self-control over your egocentric sinful desires. There must be growth in perseverance to withstand the hardships and stresses of sin and sinners. There must be growth in godliness that is living daily in a manner that pleases God. There must be growth in brotherly love or affection towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. There must be growth in love, which means sacrificially seeking the highest good of another with no expectation of anything in return. And as believers grow in these virtues, we will experience the abundance of God's grace or favor in our lives. By God's grace, we will not fall victim to the machinations and deceptions of false teachers. Believer, you and I must examine our spiritual lives and determine how well we are growing or increasing in these qualities. Growth in these graces are the best indicator of your spiritual health. And where these qualities are lacking, there is something drastically wrong. According to 2 Peter 1.8, where these qualities are increasing, we will not be unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Peter concludes his epistle by stating that believers are not only to be growing in the grace, but also in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So believers need to grow in grace, but they also need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now knowledge, gnosis, relates to learning and reasoning the scriptures in a manner that influences and informs our ethics. In 2 Peter 1.20, Peter stated that before anything else, we ought to know and understand the origins of scripture. Theologically, this is known as bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture. If we do not have a solid foundation regarding the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture, we will fall for anything coming down the pike claiming to be biblical. Then, in 2 Peter 3, 8-13, Peter exhorted us to be not ignorant about the doctrines of God or the end times. Theologically, these two doctrines are the doctrines of bibliology and eschatology. By understanding the doctrine of God, we can be comforted by knowing that when God promises to do something, He will do it. And by understanding the doctrine of end times, we will be encouraged to grow in holiness and godliness. Now, in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter exhorts us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In particular, this knowledge or gnosis of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ refers to clearly and distinctly understanding what the Scriptures reveal about Jesus and apply it to our life. Theologically, this is known as Christology. And that the term grow, again, is a present tense imperative verb, underscores that we must increase in this knowledge and that acquiring such is one of the ongoing tasks we undertake. As Richard Bauckham states, that the knowledge of Christ refers to the deepening experience of Christ and understanding of the truth of Christ, which should continue to increase until the parousia, until his coming, brings a full revelation of him. 
Now, gaining a more precise and more distinct understanding of Jesus Christ requires study and meditation in God's Word. Believer, you and I must heed the warnings of Isaiah 5.13 and Hosea 4.6 that we will go into exile and be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, growing in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes not only from the study of Scripture, but also from obeying the Scriptures. As Jesus himself stated in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So, Growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ comes by studying and obeying the Word of God. Believer, you need to ask yourself, are you studying the Scripture? And then, are you obeying what you have studied? Now, Peter's emphasis upon this knowledge was a direct attack against the falsely called knowledge of the false teachers which had caused some to have gone astray. 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and thus gone astray from the face. Faith, grace be with you. See, one of the tenets of antinomian Gnosticism was a denial of Christ's deity. Thus, for the third time in this epistle, Peter refers to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This title adheres to the Granville Sharp Rule. Hence, Lord and Savior are both descriptive of Jesus Christ. The title Lord, Kyrios, is the Greek equivalent for God's name Yahweh. It denotes Christ as the one who has ownership and authority. And Savior is one of God's names in the Old Testament. Psalm 106.21 They forgot God, their Savior. Isaiah 43.3 I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. See, by calling Christ the Savior, Peter not only acknowledged Him as God, but as the deliverer, preserver, and protector of humanity. And that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior means that He is Yahweh Elohim, the One who exists the mighty, great, and exalted Sovereign One. And so contrary to the teachings of the false teachers, Jesus Christ was indeed divine. Furthermore, we cannot separate Jesus Christ the Savior from Jesus Christ the Lord. In fact, Jesus Christ is referred to as Savior only ten times in the New Testament, whereas in the same scriptures He is referred to as Lord 700 times. It's also worth noting the use of the personal possessive pronoun, our. Christ is not a Lord or a Savior. He is our Lord and our Savior. That is, believer, you and I personally possess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. See, only those who repent of their sins and place their faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross can make this claim. Satan can claim that Jesus is the Savior. Satan can claim that Jesus is the Lord. But he can never profess that Jesus is his Savior or his Lord. Now, continuing the theme of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Peter concludes his epistle with this doxology. 
To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, doxologies are declarations of praise that express theological truths about the Godhead. In Jewish literature, doxologies were used to mark the conclusion of a prayer or a hymn. And as such, each of the five books which compose the Psalms ends with a doxology. Psalm 41.13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Psalm 72.18 and 19, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory, amen and amen. Psalm 89.52, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Psalm 106.48, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. And Psalm 150, Praise the Lord, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now doxologies are always ascribed to God. As God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. However, the to him of Peter's doxology refers back to Jesus Christ. So by ascribing this doxology to Christ, Peter was establishing the deity of Jesus, that is, he is God. Therefore, we are to praise Jesus as God. Now the glory here refers to the Shekinah glory. Now the term Shekinah is derived from the Hebrew term Shachim, which means to dwell, tabernacle, or pitch a tent. It describes the presence of God in a particular locale manifested as light. Now John 1, 9 and 14 reveals that Jesus is the true light which coming into the world dwelt among us. The term dwelt, skeneo, means to tabernacle or pitch a tent. Thus Christ is the Shekinah glory, the light of the world. And as well, the Hebrew term for glory means weight or heaviness and points to God's importance, whereas the Greek term for glory conveys the idea of reputation and honor and views God's infinite worth. That Christ receives glory implies his importance, his honor, and his worth. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And this glory belongs to Christ, both now and throughout the day of eternity. Peter could speak well to the fact of Christ's glory. He had been an eyewitness, along with James and John, of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18. The day of eternity is synonymous with the day of God. This prophetic day begins with the renovation of the heavens and the earth and continues with their renewing and ends with the merging of Christ's kingdom with God's kingdom for all eternity. In other words, Christ's glory, and thus his deity, will endure throughout all eternity. The term amen, derived from the Hebrew term ameth, means, so let it be. It indicates that the truthfulness of this doxology. Even in the closing words of his epistle, Peter still decries the false teacher's denial of Christ's return and his eternal reign. Peter does not conclude his epistle with the typical benediction common to New Testament epistles. 
Instead, he concludes his epistle with a dual exhortation to guard yourself from false teachers and to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I challenge you to do that. Failure to guard yourself will result in you being deceived by the deceptive beliefs of immoral people. And that is so evident today. And let me tell you what that ends with. Believers drifting into immorality. And immorality doesn't have to be anything more than rebellion. And the means by which believers guard ourselves against false teachers is by growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you growing? Can you look at your life and mark out distinguishable moments of growth? Look at First Peter or Second Peter 1, 5 to 7. Are those traits growing in your life? Are you increasing in them? If not, why not? I challenge you, don't leave yourself unguarded against false teachers. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this second epistle of Peter. This warning about false teachers. Peter has devoted these three chapters to these warnings as well as exhortations. And Father, I pray that we would do well by this epistle to not just read it and not just study it, but to apply it, to obey it, to put into practice the exhortations that we have been given. Father, we don't just simply do them for the sake of doing them, but we do them because out of love, Peter wanted to keep us from evil. He wanted to keep us from deception. He wanted to keep us from false teachers. He wanted us to keep us from mingling ourselves in immorality. And so, Father, I ask and pray that you challenge each one who has listened, each one who has studied this epistle, to forsake the wicked way and to commit themselves to obeying the exhortations contained therein. Lord, keep a hedge about them as they seek to study apply, and obey your word. We pray in the matchless name of our Savior. Amen.